Good morning, Crossbridge family, and welcome to Crossbridge Online. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. And if you're a guest with us today, I would especially just like to say thank you for joining us wherever it is that you are. And I want you to know that my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is for every single person who's watching online with you right now or maybe listening in later. And that's simply this, that no matter where you find yourself today in your faith, that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus because that's what we're all about here at Crossbridge. And you've come at a great time because we are kicking off a brand new series today called The Best Is Yet to come. And this series that we're going to be going through really builds off of our last series, which was called, uh, you know, The Difference a Year Can Make. And we talked about how much changes in a year in our life. But we need to be able to, in the midst of all these changes, kind of look ahead with anticipation of the best things in life are still yet to come. And I know that a lot of things have changed in the last year. I, we can mention that over and over and over, but even right now, it feels like we're in yet another season of transition. Do you know what I mean? We're in another season where it feels like, well, the more comfortable people are getting going out in person after they get their vaccines or if they've had the virus and the antibodies or whatever it is, that it puts them in a place where they're feeling more comfortable. And so we're in yet another transition with kids going back to school and family members seeing each other for the first time. And while most of us, I would argue, could see the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel, sometimes it's really hard to keep positivity up when the transition goes on this long. In, in times of transition, I just think it's really easy, and we experienced this a year ago, to get tired, to get overwhelmed, to lose perspective because when things are in transition, we're waiting for the one big thing that comes and changes it all back to normal. We're waiting on something large. And in doing so, we kind of miss, I think, the impact that our everyday decisions have because our focus isn't there. Over the next four weeks, what I would love to do is we're gonna be looking at a story of a family in scripture that's caught in the midst of some massive transitions, things changing all over the place in their life. They end up relocating, they end up getting married, there's the loss of loved ones and you know both husbands and kids and job changes, faith changes, relationship changes. There's delicate business transactions that have to happen and there's kids that are entering into the picture, all of this in four very short but masterfully written chapters. We call this the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is what we're gonna be looking at each and every week for four weeks, and we'll take it a chapter at a time to discover what happens and how does this family handle all of these transitions, the things that happen in everyday life make a difference what could that mean for us today? So if you have your Bibles with you, here's what I'm gonna ask for you to do, to bring a Bible with you each and every Sunday. So wherever you're joining us from, have a Bible. And if you need a Bible, let us know. We'd be more than happy to send you one because we believe that this is everything and we're unashamedly biblical. We wanna land here. So I want you to bring a Bible. I want you to bring a pen with you and I want you to come ready each week, expecting that God has something for you today as well as tomorrow, 
but that he is at work in our everyday lives. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. And it may be a little bit difficult for you to find because it is tiny. Like I said, four chapters. And what you want to do is go to the book of Judges. It's in the Old Testament, very near the beginning. When you get to the book of Judges, it'll be right after that, just before First and Second Samuel. So if you start to flip and you see those first and seconds in the Old Testament, it's just before that. And like I said, these are, this is a tiny book. It's really easy to miss and go, I don't think it's here. Because so much happens around this book that it feels like this little story that we're about to read, it holds really no significance in comparison to what's around it. When you look at Joshua and Judges, and if you remember, we soaped those uh, last year. We looked at, and soaping is just simply the way that we look at Scripture together, chapter by chapter. We would love for you to join us in that if you're, if you're new. And so we soaped through Joshua and Judges, and we looked at these kind of really difficult, toxic stories about how Israel claimed their land, this promised land that God had for them. And then when we soaped through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, it was all about how they kind of created some structure to that land. And they, they gained a government with their kings and then how everything went haywire. And so it was this a lot of action around, a lot of war, prophets, priests, laws, all these crazy things. And Ruth, Ruth doesn't have that. Ruth doesn't have any real commands from God in here, actually. It, God never even speaks in the four chapters that we're about to read. He's mentioned a lot, but it has nothing to do with the temple worship. It has nothing to do with prophets, priests, warriors, kings. None of that really exists here. In comparison to what surrounds it, it's really easy to skip it over and not give it the attention that I believe it deserves. But check this out though. Ruth is all about highlighting the, that God is at work in the everyday decisions that we make. It's really easy for us, I think, to overlook the impact that our everyday choices have when we're constantly looking back at the big things that shaped us or forward to the things that might be able to change and bring us back to normal and where we currently are in the everyday gets lost as we look back, look forward, and we lose what it means to be present. Even the size and the placement of Ruth, at least in my opinion, is a reminder that even the small choices matter in the bigger picture of our life. So go ahead. And I want you to put a bookmark in this spot because tomorrow, if you're soaping with us, this is what you'll be soaping at least until Thursday. And so I'm telling you, go ahead and read this. You may want to read all four chapters at one time to get the whole picture. It'll take you maybe 15, 20 minutes. It is fantastic. You could even put it on on your Bible app while you're walking the dog and listen to it before you make it back around the loop. So while I'd love to go through this all verse by verse, it's just not realistic for the time that we have. So what I'd like to do is just pull out some things. And there's a lot of culture that we may not necessarily understand in here. So I'm gonna do my best to pause when I can to kind of say, ah, we're gonna miss this. Here's why it's important. So this is why I want you to have your pen with you so that you can write in the margins and underline and circle things that God's speaking to you through this passage. So with that in mind, are you ready to jump in? I'm so excited. We are gonna be in Ruth chapter one, and we're gonna start at verses one and two. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah 
left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now, when we look at this, the author of Ruth, who no one knows who wrote this, the only thing that we know about the author is actually that he was or she was, but most likely it was a man in the time that this would be written. Most scholars will agree that whoever wrote this, this author is one of the most educated Israelites and his usage of language and masterful storytelling is unparalleled in almost all of literature. You don't even have to be a biblical scholar. Most ancient literature, uh, you know, doctorates and, and people who are masters in this stuff will hold Ruth up as a novella, a short story, if you will, short novel. They will hold this up as one of the most masterfully written stories in all of history. We are talking unbelievably structured, even to the point where, you know, it's not going to matter, but it's just cool to me. If you take like the first five verses of Ruth, and then when you go to the end of the book, before you get to this little genealogy thing, um, this like almost, uh, you know, it's like a bonus scene, if you will, the last five verses of Ruth, all having to do with the person of Naomi, there's 71 Hebrew words of peace, and they are directly paralleled to each other. And whoever wrote this really had a story to tell to say there's something that happens in the beginning and something that happens in the end, and they both tie together. And I want you to know that this story is so intentional from its placement, it's the way it's written, even to the point where there's so many Hebrew words in here that aren't used anywhere else in the Old Testament. They're unique and beautiful. And so it's just unbelievable to me. The, the author and this storyteller starts us out with a very important phrase in verse one when he says, in the days that the judges ruled in Israel. And what's important about this, it doesn't give us an exact date when this is taking place. It, we can make some assumptions, and you'll figure out this when you hit chapter four, that most likely this is gonna be near the end of this time of judges that we're dealing with. Uh, but if you remember when we soap judges, what we know about the culture is that this was an extremely dark time in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, they had taken over the promised land, but the nation as a whole, we are talking a hot mess of tribes. They couldn't get along with each other. They had no central government. They had no leaders. The people repeatedly turned away from the things that God asked them to do and commanded them to do. And every neighboring people that they had kind of taken over, but maybe not fully taken over or fully taken over and kind of brought them into their fold, all of the neighboring tribes continued to take advantage of the disarray of Israel and so they just kind of kept harassing them, invading them. And there was no peace in Israel at this time. One of the tribes and the nations that did this and some of this harassment is the Moabites. This tribe of Moab that lived on the eastern side of where Israel would be across the sea. And what we find here is, is it's clear for the most part that these two nations did not get along well and the Israelites viewed them as a less than tribe. Most likely they spoke the same languages, even had some of the same cultural norms, but the Israelites viewed them as other and didn't like them. And so because of this famine, 
Elimelech, who's living in Bethlehem, this place of bread is, is what it's called. His wife and his two kids, they head where? They go across to Moab. This is likely about 70 to 100 miles from wherever they were living. And it's going to take them about a week to get there. As if relocating to an almost enemy tribal area because of a famine wasn't enough. We're hit with this next piece of transition in chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, then Elimelech died. Okay, so we start with Elimelech is trying to save his family, his wife, his kids, and we find out in three words, then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with just her two sons. And so the two sons married Moabite women. Now, I don't want to know how this marriage of an enemy tribe's women went, was going to go over in Bethlehem. Not well. You don't marry foreign women. But the two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malhan and Kilhan died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Tragedy has engulfed Naomi. In 71 Hebrew words, our author has destroyed this woman's life. And now she's an older, childless widow in a foreign land. She is alone except for her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Now we, now we have three childless widowed women. This, just honestly, in this culture, this is a death sentence, especially for Naomi. Naomi in a foreign land as a widow, as a foreign widow with no one to take care of her, has no rights. She's got nothing. She is, it's the equivalent of homeless right now. And I don't see that any of her two daughter-in-law's families are going to say, come live with us because they're not even back home. They're, they're stuck. I am positive that even Naomi knew there's no way that any of these Moabite families are going to care for me. So I, I really only have one choice. There's only one thing that I could do. She heads back to Bethlehem to be with her people. And, and in that moment, she brings Orpah with her and she brings Ruth with her. And it's funny, I, I think sometimes in our own lives, when grief and pain come into our lives, these times of major upheaval and tons of transitions in our life, they happen. Sometimes we don't, or we make choices that don't make sense in the moment. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me where I'll look back and go, like, I'll, I'll all of a sudden wake up and go, why did I do that? That didn't make any sense. For Naomi, I think this moment actually does come when they're on their journey home. Remember, it's about seven to 10 days now for these three women to travel back over and up to Bethlehem. And so, at some point in this week, I don't know when, something clicks for Naomi. This moment of clarity comes. And she says this in verse 8. Jump down to verse 8 with me. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's home, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with security of another marriage. 
And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Naomi is about to take two women from their culture and bring them to her culture where they would be foreign childless widows. They would take on the same title that she had with almost no hope of anyone taking care of them. And this moment of clarity comes where she's like, whoa, 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 Orpah. Or for Ruth, this is, this is so off. You need to go home. You need to go back to where there's a possibility that you could get remarried, that you could have kids, that you could have a family. Like there's something for you here. There's a better chance for you in Moab than there is in Bethlehem. If they come with her, they will get no hope. They will get no help. But Naomi uses a word here that I just want to hang on for a second. So if you have your pens with you, I want you to go ahead down to verse eight, where it says, may the Lord reward your kindness. Go ahead and circle that word, underline that word. This word is huge because the word kindness that's used here isn't like, hey, thanks for walking with me. Thanks for, you know, being a partner right now and, and taking this trip or, you know, thanks for being nice when I was really depressed here. It was not a good season for me. You are kind. The word that's used here is so much bigger and stronger that it, it, it blows my mind. So the word for kindness near is chesed. And so in the corner of your Bibles, in that margin, it's K-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And she's like, I need to thank you for your chesed to me. And this word means faithful love or unfailing kindness. This is a noun that it's implying an unconditional, highly favorable disposition towards an object. Simply put, this word here is all about extreme loyalty. It's about freely choosing obligations for yourself to hold on to. It's actually, here's what's cool, this is the same exact word that God uses with Moses in Exodus chapter 20 when Moses, you know, goes to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Would you believe that when you get to the, the one about idol worship and it says, don't worship any idols before me in Exodus chapter 20, all of a sudden God says, if you do worship other idols, this is not going to go well for you. It's going to incur death. But then he says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse six, he says, but I lavish unfailing love. That word unfailing love is the word chesed. But I lavish chesed for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Naomi would have known about these commands. She would have known the usage of this word. She would have understood the power. And these girls are committed to her. And now she pauses before she blesses to send them back home and says, I have seen your chesed. I have seen your unfailing love towards my sons and towards me. I have seen you show up to love for at this point, you know, it's not defined how long they were married, but we have only one phrase that says 10 years later. For at least 10 years, Naomi has experienced this love. And so for her, she recognizes that 
and says, you deserve better. Go home. They push her and they're like, no, we're not going to go. We're not going to go. And then Naomi, after that first like cry fest, when they tell her, no, we're going with you. We will take you to your people. Naomi kind of gets really real with them. She gets like straight into their face and she's like, listen, let me, let me, let me give you reality. Do you want reality right now? Your chesed to me could never be returned. I can't give you anything. I have nothing to provide for you because even when I go home, I'm too old to get married and have kids at this point. And even if I could have kids, let's say I have sons. Are you really willing to come to a foreign land and wait till those sons are of marrying age so that you have a husband from my line? No, that's not fair to you. That's not fair to your families. That's not fair to my people. The reality is you should go home. Thank you for your chesed. She announces her truth in this moment that my life is bitter and she feels like God is against her. Why would you want to come back to my town where my God has made my life bitter? Why would you want this? And so after a second massive cry fest together, Orpah turns and she heads home. But we read at the end of verse 14. Check this out. Look how Ruth responds at the end of verse 14. It says this, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But at the end of verse 14, what do we see Ruth doing? She's clung tightly to Naomi. I mean, this reminds me of like when my kids were little and um, I, I used to have to go back when we could travel on airplanes and go places. Uh, I, I used to be able to go off and I would speak at retreats around the country and have a blast with teenagers and do all this. But my kids knew that I would be gone for a couple of days. And so when I was about to say goodbye to them, they knew. And, you know, we'd give our hugs and our kisses. And then inevitably they would cling to my leg and sit on my foot. You know, and you're trying to walk and it feels heavy. And you're like, well, I can't walk out the door like this. Um, they did not want me to leave. And at some point, though, you know, the recognition came. I I'm going. They let go. Ruth is not about to let go. As a matter of fact, she is about to tighten her grip. Check out verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Wow. Ruth, this childless widow Moabite just committed her life to Naomi and to her people. And, and this statement here in verses 16 and 17 has so many layers to it that it could be a series that we go through all in and of itself. It is unbelievable how masterfully the author has crafted this and how bold of a statement that Ruth is making. I don't know the tone 
of Ruth when she says this. So what you get from me when I read is just how I interpret this and I'm interpreting it through the exclamation point found at the end of verse 17, that she's not like, you know, hey, don't ask me to leave and turn back. No, no, this is, this is her clap back. This is the, you've tried to push me away twice. I'm not going. I'm clinging harder. I'm on you like wet on rain, Naomi. You are not getting rid of me. You will not, you cannot make me go anywhere. And while these are all, all very bold statements that she makes, there is one statement that's actually much heavier than all of these other statements. It's when she says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth is not an Israelite. She's the part of the nation, part of the tribe that's been invading, that's been poking, that's been frustrating, that's been causing some of the disarray in the time of the judges when nothing makes sense. And what she says here is, I'm not an Israelite, but I am announcing now that I am going to be part of a new family line and I'm going to have to learn about all that you do. I'm going to have to figure out what your people do. And then she's committing to the God of Naomi. By first naming the people and then naming God, Ruth is very clearly here revealing that she could not relate to their God until she could relate to his people. That she would understand who God was by who these people were. She's going to have to be part of the greater community of Bethlehem here in order to reset what she learned in Moab. And I do wonder if Naomi lived out such a life while it's never said or stated for a decade in front of Ruth that she's like, there's something that could be different. But whatever it is that you believe, I I'm fully committing to this. I'm all in to be with you. I'm here for the long haul. I'm going with you. As I studied this, one of the practices that I, I do, one of the disciplines, if you will, of prayer when I'm preparing messages is I, I try to read the Bible and I try to paint the picture in my head. I try to create layers to it and cultures and try to figure out like, what's it feel like as they're traveling the desert? What, what, what tones of voices are they using? Or, you know, what facial expressions do they have? What's it smell like in the desert? And a lot of times I try to mentally use my imagination to feel what characters are feeling just to try to understand it. And, and while I do that, it doesn't always happen, but sometimes uh, soundtracks come into play. <laughs> sometimes there's a song that'll pop into my head and there's one song that I could not get out of my head as I was reviewing this. And it's a song that I kept hearing from the band Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, from probably one of their best albums ever in 2005 called Plans. And it's from a song called I'll Follow You Into the Dark, where um, Ben Gibbard, who's the, uh, he writes the song. It just starts out like this. Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light or tunnels or gates of white, just our hands clasped so tight waiting for the hint of a spark. If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied, illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs. If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark. I know that that's written 
for a guy looking to this girl in this context that Ben's writing and saying, I'm going to follow you forever. There's nothing that could separate us. And even if there's undefined in the future, I'm there. But I kept hearing this song as, as Ruth clings tighter, as she doesn't let go, as she commits everything that she has. And she's just saying, Ruth or Naomi, I've seen your journey into darkness. I've seen the steps that you feel like have taken you to be defined as bitter, all of the loss, all these multiple transitions in your life. I know your future is uncertain wherever you go, but I'm going with you. I will follow you into the dark of whatever's next. And then verse 18 tells us that when Naomi saw that Ruth was, circle this word, underline this word, determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Naomi saw two things in Ruth. In verse 8, she saw kindness, chesed, and in verse 18, she sees determination. In the midst of all of these transitions in Naomi's life, she needed kindness and determination more than she realized. In times of transition in our life, it's so easy to get tired, overwhelmed, and to lose perspective of what's really going on. So how then are we supposed to get through the everyday life when there's one transition after another that's in front of us like right now? Same way Naomi did, finding ourselves in a relationship built around determination and chesed, unfailing love and kindness. Sometimes I think we just need someone alongside us who's gonna be there till the end, no matter what the cost. I think this is, this is why the words of Jesus matter so much for us today and why they mattered so much for the disciples. In John chapter 14, um, very, very uh, quickly, right after he finished washing his disciples' feet at that last supper together, right before he's told them everything's about to change because I'm going to die and be crucified. And they're all kind of in this place of panic and worry and anxiety. Everything's changing. In John chapter 14, it's so beautiful. It says this, and I'm going to read verse 1 and then jump down to verses 15. And it says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And when Jesus says hearts here, the Greek word that he's using here actually means don't let your soul, don't let your mind, don't let your spirit be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And in verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate. That, that word advocate there is the word in the Greek paraclete. And paraclete, very simply, it's like a comforter, encourager, a counselor. It's best translated, I'm going to give you someone who will walk alongside. And he will never leave you. It finishes. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Jesus absolutely knew that the disciples were going to need someone to walk with them. 
just like Naomi needed someone to walk with her. And he promised right here to the disciples, if someone places their trust in me, if you believe in me in a perfect life, an unjust death, and a conquering resurrection, if you believe in me, I am going to send you the Holy Spirit to live alongside and inside you. And I love that word paraclete, someone to walk with us. Jesus knew that every day there is trouble. Every day there's transitions in our life. Every day carries choices. Every day can be tough. And in this world, we will have troubles, but Jesus has overcome the world And when we place our trust in him, we are declaring like Ruth did. I'm leaving who I was. And I'm clinging to a new people, a people who want to go after Jesus. I'm leaving who I was and I'm becoming part of a new family line. I am taking this family line as my family line and this God as my God. It's no longer about me at the center. It's about this community and about God. And when we do this, we are part of the bigger family of God. It's all new for us. When we walk with the Holy Spirit, we walk in community with other disciples of Jesus who have that same Holy Spirit living in them, empowering them to keep walking alongside us as we walk alongside them. Naomi needed this desperately in her life, and God provided it through Ruth, a foreign, childless, grieving widow. She made everyday decisions, showing her chesed kindness and her determination And while I'd hate to ruin the story for you and give you the outcome, you're going to read it on Thursday anyway, so I might as well tell you. We're going to discover that this choice that Ruth makes to follow Naomi is going to ultimately end with Ruth getting married and being King David's great-grandmother. The same King David whose lineage Jesus comes from. Sometimes we just need someone to walk alongside us who will be there to the end. Ruth showed us that with Naomi and Jesus shows that to us with the Holy Spirit. That the words that were spoken a thousand years before Jesus could say it to the disciples of I'm going to give you a chesed spirit. I'm going to give you this unwavering spirit to walk alongside you and demonstrate that love for us, that his lineage was clearly demonstrated. It was lived out in his family line, that a life lived with chesed and kindness and a determination to make the right choices every day. In turn, turn to this commitment that we need, and I would argue that others need around us. I wonder how you're walking today. Who are you walking with and do you feel like Naomi? Do you have that moment where you're thinking, you might as well change my name to bitter because everything has gone wrong. Nothing seems to work in my life right now and I feel like God's against me. Everyone's deserted me. And there's no one in your life right now that you would say, this 
This is my committed friend, my paraclete. If you're in that place, I want to ask you, have you placed your trust in Jesus? Because what Jesus promises us is that we will never be alone, that he will never leave us, never forsake us, and even to the point of choosing to die for us so that he could send us the Holy Spirit to always be with us. If you're here today and you're thinking, I, I, I want that. I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. I have not placed my trust in Jesus. My family line is not his family line. I want that. I want to pause real quick and just say, would you join me in praying, asking God to be part of his family, trusting in what Jesus has done for us and that the promise for the disciples is the promise for you that when we place our trust in him, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit for you. If you've not done that, would you, would you just pray with me right now? Jesus, I want to be part of your family. I want to follow you because I feel alone. I'm tired. I need hope. I need you to forgive me of my sins and to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can live out chesed in commitment to you and to those around me. Help me, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with us for the first time, would you do me a favor and just send us a message at prayer at crossbridgecc.org so that we can help walk alongside you as Ruth walked alongside Naomi. Because that's what this is all about. And as we close today, I simply just want to leave you, no matter where you are in your faith today, with two questions that I hope you ask yourself all week long as you're reading through Ruth or thinking about the transitions that are happening all around us and what am I doing? I hope that there's two questions that will resonate with you today. And the first one is very personal. I want you to ask yourself, do I walk with chesed kindness and a determination to love myself and others like Jesus? Look at the choices that you make this week. Filter them not through, is this the best thing for me or the worst thing for me or for other people, but does this demonstrate the kindness and commitment that Jesus has? Is this how he would choose? Live with chesed kindness and determination. The second question is, am I in a relationship with anyone that I know will be there till the very end? You are not meant to walk this journey alone. And I feel like I need to speak into this just for a second, and it's not in my notes, but it's just a moment that I feel like I need to say something. I think too many of us are looking for that in a spouse. We're looking for that partner for life that it's like, oh, they'll be there to the end. And some of you have been left sourly disappointed of someone who's turned around and went back to Moab. They never came with you. Any of us, whether it's a healthy marriage, an unhealthy marriage, or a divorce, or our teens, our young adults, or maybe you're single and you're looking for the spouse thinking they'll fill this, they will never fill what Jesus Christ can only fill. And that is the truest companion in our life that we should love above all other. 
but we are called to be in intimate relationship with each other. And so I want to encourage you that if you feel alone and do not have this in your life, go find a small group here at Crossbridge with other men and other women, other teenagers who will love you right where you're at and say, I am with you. I will walk with you into the dark of whatever's coming next. I I don't know, but I'll do this. Go to our small group page. They're in person, they're online, whatever you're comfortable with, there's a group for you to find. Don't miss this. Make a commitment, a determined commitment. Crossbridge family, I pray this week that you would experience the chesed of God, that you would enjoy your time soaping in Ruth. It's going to be an amazing week. May God bless you. I love you. I miss you. And I cannot wait to be with you next week. God bless, guys. <laughs>